Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Good morning, everybody. And um, feeling a little bit nervous, actually. It's been a while. Um, but anyway, um, it's nice to be here, and it is a privilege to be here. And um, so good morning to everyone here and also everybody who's online as well. It is really nice to see a few people back from holidays as well um, who haven't been here the last couple of weeks. So as Daryl said this morning, um, I'm going to speak about a couple of the names of God and I'll get to um, those particular ones in just a second. Um, But really, look, in a way, it's a little self-indulgent, I guess, because these are two names of God that um, are pretty precious to me and have been for a really long time. And they're two names of God that I, um, I thank God for really regularly and claim a lot of the time when I'm praying. So, um, you know, there are many, many names of God in scripture and um, I guess it takes more than a lifetime to even start to grasp them, but um, we're just going to look at two of them today. Uh, and so... Um, I'm hoping I can control this. I can. So I'll give you a moment to read that. This was sent to me um, from a friend who sends me these sorts of things quite regularly. And uh, she sent it to me and, you know, we didn't even have to talk about it because we've both been there and we've, we've shared that with each other before many a time, particularly around Christmas time when, um, you know, you get that gift and you go, Really? Do they not know me at all? Um, But of course, there's also the flip side when sometimes someone um, gives you a gift and um, they just nail it. You know, they give you something that actually it's not really about the gift itself, but it's so perfect for who you are. And they have noticed and listened and seen something in you. um, And it's really precious because you go, oh my gosh, they, they really know me. And so it's a really powerful, um, powerful thing. And so that kind of leads me to, I suppose, these two names that we're going to look at today, um, which um, we'll get to in just a sec, but it's the God um, who sees me and the Lord will provide. And so really this morning, um, this is my structure. Um, I'm just going to uh, look at a couple of uh, Old Testament stories. So the story of Hagar, when she calls God um, El-Roi, uh, the, the God who sees me, and the story of Abraham and Isaac when um, Abraham calls uh, God Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And then I just want to sort of very briefly link that to Jesus in the New Testament um, before thinking about, you know, maybe what do we do with this and, and how does this impact on us today? I probably should follow my notes, but... Um, It's unlikely that's going to happen. So we're going to start with the story of Hagar and um, just a little bit of context. At this point in time, Abram has been um, incredibly blessed by God um, and, you know, with material wealth and um, prosperity, but he doesn't yet have a son. And so therefore he has no, um, you know, no heir of his own body. And yet he's got God's promise that God is going to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. So he's got this amazing promise. Um, but it hasn't yet been, um, hasn't yet seen the fulfilment of that. Um, and so we're going to pick up the story um, of Hagar, who was um, Sarah, uh, Abram's wife, Sarah's um, slave or servant. And um, we're going to actually read that on the screen. But if you wanted to look it up, we're looking in Genesis 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. 
but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram, uh, after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she said. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So I really just want to make a couple of observations um, here about Hagar. Um, obviously a pretty, um, pretty appalling circumstance that she finds herself in. But the first thing um, that strikes me about her when I read this story and the later one as well where, where God also finds her crying um, is that in the scheme of things, in worldly terms, she really wasn't very important. Um, so she's an Egyptian in Abram's household. So she's a foreigner, um, she's a slave woman, and she's a woman. Um, so I can only assume that culturally and economically she was pretty powerless. Um, and so for the Lord to show up to her is quite a significant thing, I think, for us to read. The other thing um, that we can notice about Hagar is even though um, I, think, I feel very sorry for her, I think she's, she's easy to really sympathise with in the circumstances in which she finds herself, um, because she really is just treated like a, a possession and she doesn't get any say in what happens. Um, but at the same time, she's not completely blameless. Um, she does you know, end up, understandably, um, I'm sure, but she does end up a bit smug when she is pregnant. And it's probably the first time that she's ever sort of had any, anything over Sarai, um, any, any sort of power um, being maybe felt better than her in any way, shape or form. And so we can kind of understand why she would sort of then start to despise her mistress and um, feel as she does. But at the same time, her behaviour isn't perfect. Um, and so I think there's a couple of aspects there about her that we can probably be encouraged by. Because God shows up and she calls him this name, the God who sees me. And I think the fact that the Lord speaks to her, he sought, sought her out and speaks to her, he knows her particular circumstances, he clearly knows what's been going on, 
Um, he knows that she's kind of the collateral damage in a sense of um, Abraham and Sarah's do-it-yourself, let's speed up God's promise kind of approach to things. And God sees her despite her lowliness and despite her own imperfections as well. And I guess we can only imagine how profound that must have been for Hagar because surely it told her that despite who she was and where she'd come from, she actually mattered. Um, and she is valued, and she is part of God's purpose, no matter how small and insignificant she perhaps felt. So this is Abraham's God who has shown up to her. And I just, I just love that personal touch of God because, um, you know, that's, that's the God we worship, isn't it? This personal God who knows our specific circumstances and who shows up and seeks us out um, even when we are lowly and we're not perfect. Ooh. Um, And I love the fact that it reminds us that God is not distant, he's not uninvolved, and he certainly isn't absent. Um, He is, as Hagar remarks, the God who sees me. So now we're going to look at the second story. And the second story is the story of Abraham and Isaac. And it's probably very familiar to um, most of you or many of you. So by this time, Abraham and Sarah actually have the son that God promised them, um, Isaac, and he is a boy. And so they've already had this amazing um, supernatural miracle take place in their lives where Sarah, um, at the age of 100 or nearly, uh, has given birth to a child. And you can't even really get your head around that, that when you think about it. Um, but that's where they've, they've got to. So now um, God's timing has come about, the right time for them to have this child, this miracle child, and Isaac is a boy. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from him your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. 
He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So I want to make two observations here about Abraham as well. There are many, of course, that can be made. And and it is a passage that speaks um, to his faith, of course. Um, But a couple of things that I guess strike me when I read this story and have done recently anyway. The first is of course that he just doesn't even question God's command and I I can't really quite imagine um, us doing that. That you know if you've waited all this time God's given you this promise of this son that is going to be um, and that the, the descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars and then finally um, after a bit of a, a, a wrong turn and, and all the rest of it he's finally got this son And God tells him to sacrifice him. So the fact that Abraham doesn't question that, I I do find remarkable. And I guess that's why it speaks to his faith. Um, But at the same time, I guess he's he's gone through this process of seeing his wife, far too old to bear children, um, bearing this son. So he has seen the miraculous hand of God at work. and, And I guess that's also built his faith. So he doesn't question God's command. But the other thing that I find really interesting in this story, um, as in a lot of stories in the Bible, is in the details that seem to be a bit irrelevant. Um, but they're never irrelevant, are they? And, and that is that he didn't actually expect God to provide what he already had. So when we actually read that story, um, you might have noticed that um, Abraham's response is to go and actually gather the materials that he's going to need. So he um, gets the wood and the knife and the what's called the fire. I assume that's some sort of flint or something like that. Um, and he doesn't actually expect God to provide those things because he already has them. And it's just been playing on my mind, I guess, a little bit when I've been reading this through, is whether, um, whether I do that or whether I keep asking God for things that actually he's already given to me and that I already have. So it's an interesting thing that he, he doesn't say, well, that's great, God, but you're going to have to you know, get the wood together for me and you're going to have to get this. He actually just goes about getting what he already has and then he goes off to obey what God has told him to do. Um, it's an interesting story um, because the other thing that I, I find quite fascinating here is that when... God then stops him from sacrificing Isaac. Um, Abraham doesn't praise God by saying, oh, you're the God who saves my son or saves lives. He actually um, worships him as the Lord will provide. So it's God's provision that he actually um, focuses in on here. And I find that quite interesting. And this, this is a story, of course, that foreshadows um, the story, uh, God's provision um, to us of Jesus Um, as the alternative sacrifice to get on that altar and die on our behalf. And so I guess, you know, there's good reason why the focus here is on provision because it's God who's provided um, what we couldn't provide for ourselves in in that sense and in that grand narrative of the whole of Scripture. But here if we focus in on the smaller narrative of that of, of Abraham and Isaac, you know, we actually have here a provision that does save Isaac's life um, and we know that we can read in Hebrews later on in chapter 11 that you know Abraham seems to have probably assumed that you know in, in offering Isaac God would probably resurrect him and therefore still fulfill the promise and so there's all these other foreshadowings of course of Christ there as well 
Um, but in the moment, in the little story of Abraham and Isaac, God provides that ram just in the thicket, um, probably seemingly ordinary in a way, except right there where it needed to be at that time. I read um, just recently, and I can't remember where, something about Isaac being um, the original um, or the first living sacrifice. And I had never really thought about him like that, um, the fact that he was literally on that altar, bound, and then got back up again. And for the rest of his life, I just it makes me wonder, you know, how that, how that pl- impacted on his mind. Like every single moment of his, his life, he must have had a, an incredible awareness that he really was literally a living sacrifice. He was the sacrifice who lived. Um, and even though we're called to be living sacrifices, I guess we don't have quite that same tangible experience to draw on. Um, but yeah, it's just it's a bit of a tangent really. But I just really wonder the impact that that must have had on his life without psychologists or psychiatrists or anyone to help him unpack the trauma of it. Um, but just this, this idea that he really is a living sacrifice. So it must have surely shaped his entire life. So two names of God, um, but let's just take a moment to go to the New Testament and see how that plays out um, in Jesus. Um, And so before we do, just wanted to share this quote with you as well, because we have got these sort of two names, El-Roi and Jehovah-Jireh, the two names that we um, have just looked at in those stories. And Hannah Whitel-Smith, I don't know if anyone else still reads Hannah Whitel-Smith these days. She's got two, she may have more, but I've only ever found two of her books. Um, the Christian Secret of a Happy Life is her most famous. And, and this is from another one of her books called The God of All Comfort. And it's lovely because she actually draws these ideas together in this little paragraph. And it's partly why these two names are so precious to me because I read this quite a lot of years ago. Um, So I'm just going to read that through. I know you've probably had an opportunity to already look at it. She says, If the Lord sees and knows our needs, of course he will provide for them. Being our father, he can't do anything else. As soon as a good mother sees that her child needs anything, she sets about supplying that need. She doesn't even wait for the child to ask. The sight of the need is enough. When God therefore says to us, I am he who sees your need, he in reality says also, I am he who provides, for he cannot see and fail to provide. So let's go to Jesus. Um, When we get to the New Testament, of course, what we find is the embodiment of these names of God in in Jesus, in um, human form. Um, You don't need to to look too hard to see that Jesus uh, absolutely is um, seeing people. He was seeing people. Um, he wasn't dismissing them and doing what we call sometimes in my work the Vaseline eye, where you just sort of you know look past and don't really actually look properly at anything. He really saw people, um, and he also provided for them. He provided for their needs emotionally and physically, and also spiritually. So it's very easy to see how he embodied um, those particular qualities. And I thought just to choose one um, example. Of, um, of that, you know, since I'm the one speaking, I would choose my favourite example. Um, and that is the story of the woman um, who, who's been bleeding for a long, many years, who um, he heals. And she tries to do it behind the scenes. She's trying to be anonymous. Um, she obviously doesn't really feel worthy of his attention or his time. Um, but she just knows that if she can just touch his cloak, 
just touch his garment, she will be healed. So we're going to also just read that story um, on the screen as well. This is the version of it from the book of Mark in Mark 5. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realised that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's a great story, isn't it? Um, I knew that if I was going to cry this morning, this would be the point that it would happen because it catches me in the throat, that story, every time. Um, and I think, I think it's just because um, I've been there, I don't know if you've been there, where you kind of do feel like you don't really deserve someone's time or attention, that you're not really worthy, that um, you know your problems are so small in the scheme of things that really... It, it's not worth that person's while or whatever it is, or, or that sense that you just don't want to impose. Um, you know, it's not, it's not really the, the thing to do or you don't feel confident or whatever it is, or you, you feel invisible or um, all of that. And I think, I think I can relate to all of that. And this poor woman who obviously has been suffering for so long and tried so many things um, must be feeling like she's not really, um, not really worth the attention of Jesus, but not only does he provide the healing, but he wants to see her um, because she's not anonymous to him. Um, she's she's not she's a daughter. He calls her daughter, and he wants to know her. He wants to see her and know her, and not just provide the healing. Um, so it's a, just a beautiful story, I think, of um, the way that Jesus embodied um, those two incredible attributes of our God. All right, so um, what do we do with this? Um, I guess I guess there's there's kind of two ways we can we can look at it, or as many ways we can look at it. But the two ways that I've been thinking about were that really this can impact on our relationships vertically with God, but also our relationships with each other, um, because these two names are not just Old Testament names of God that are no longer relevant. They are embodied in Christ, and they are um, they are the God we still worship. As Mark said last week, He He is unchanging, even though every single thing else around us changes. Um, he hasn't changed and he doesn't change. So just as he was the God who sees me to Hagar, he is still the God who sees me. As he was the Lord will provide to Abraham, he is still the Lord will provide for us. And in terms of the vertical relationship, um, one of the things I like to do, and I have a feeling that this might also come from Hannah Weidel Smith originally, um, is, is just to help me um, maybe grasp or try and take hold of, of truths at times 
in scripture is just to break it down word for word and and try and just spend a moment on each word and what the meaning of that is. So I've actually done that just with these two names and I know I'm using an English translation and all the rest of it, but it still works really well. So in terms of the name, the God who sees me, if we just look at the word the, first of all, um, and it's a little word and, and, and I know we can sort of skim over it, but it's, um, it's a word that means there's only one. He is the God who sees me. There aren't other gods out there who are going to see and know me. Um, he is the one. And anything else that we might treat as gods, our idols, um, or other people, or whatever it is, they aren't going to see us um, in that way. So he is the God who sees me. But he's also the God who sees me. You know, um, he's not limited by human frailties and, and, and partial understandings. He's, he's not a God who, who just gives you the wrong gift and you go, but you, don't you know me at all? We might feel like that sometimes. Um, and then over time, we generally come to realise that actually it was exactly right what God did give us. Um, but he's the God who sees me. He is infinite. He is eternal. Um, and he's the one um, who actually sees me. How amazing is that? Um, he's also the God who sees me. And, and that's the relative pronoun, meaning that we're talking about a person. Um, if it wasn't a person, we'd have the word which, the God which sees me. But we don't have the God which sees me. We have the God who sees me. And so God is a person. And this is personal. Um, and I love that. I love that this is personal, that this isn't just some sort of like, you know, energy force out there. It's not the universe. It's not um, Mother Nature. It's, it's, it's not that. This is the God who, a person, a personal God. He's also the God who sees me. And of course, that word sees is really meaning more than just actually to look at something. Um, but it's, it's meaning to see and to really see and to know. And um, it reminds me of that, you know, that cliche, I suppose, of, of couples who say that, you know, they met across a crowded room and um, their eyes met and, and they fell in love in, you know, love at first sight, all that kind of thing. And, um, and you know, it, it's, a, it's one of those cliches that we sort of hear about. But at the same time, I kind of get that's how that story could kind of happen because eye contact and really seeing someone is actually a very intimate thing. Um, when we really look at someone and really try to, to see and know them, um, it's, it is quite an intimate thing in a way. And, and so this is the God who sees me. There's an intimacy there in our relationship with him. And of course, he's the God who sees me. Um, for all the billions of people in the world, for all the billions of people who have ever lived and ever will live, he sees me. Like, really, it's, it's the woman, isn't it, touching the cloak of Jesus? My goodness, why on earth would you, would you want to look at me? Why, why do you want to know me? Um, but he does because he's awesome and he's amazing and he's full of love and full of compassion and full of mercy and full of grace. And I don't understand it, but he sees me. Um, and that's, that's an amazing truth to take hold of and an amazing truth to claim um, with him, I think, when we, when we bring our requests to him. God, you see me and this is where my circumstances are and you see them um, and you're the Lord who will provide, so I'm asking you to provide for me. Um, we can do the same, of course, with Jehovah Jireh, with the Lord will provide. 
I won't go into as much detail with that, but you can see I've just put it on the slide in the same way. The Lord will provide. And it's the Lord. I think it's Yahweh, actually, in that um, particular context. So the self-existing one, the one who doesn't require anything else or anything from us to, to be who he is and to exist. He is the I am. And that's the one who's going to provide for us. And he will provide. I am going to take a moment on this one because it's, it's in functional grammar. Um, we would call that high modality. Um, it's the degree of certainty in that word will. And, um, you know, it's not that he might provide or he could provide or he will provide if he feels like it. It's that he will. It's complete certainty there. Um, and, of course, he will provide. Um, all of our provisions ultimately come from him. He is the source um, of the resources that we have, um, however they are delivered to us. So he's the one who will provide. So just a, a nice little way, I think, of, of looking at that. Um, I'm pretty sure Hannah Whittle-Smith, as I said, is, uh, talks about it, and, and particularly with, um, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. You can, can try things like that if you, if you want to have a go at just stepping it out and, and, and meditating a little bit on God's word in that way. So in the vertical, um, sorry, the horizontal relationships then with other people, um, I guess this is actually what I thought, thought I was going to talk about today originally, was that idea that, you know, we are, we are actually image bearers of God. We've been created in God's image. Um, and it seems to me that that means that the attributes that we see in God and that we see in his names should be attributes that we have access to and that we can actually um, demonstrate in some way. It sounds, sounds pretty amazing, um, but we too can actually see uh, and can provide um, with God's help and with God's grace. And so um, I suppose really all I'm thinking about here is the fact that we are the image bearers, um, and we are also called to imitate Christ. Um, so perhaps in our horizontal relationships as well, this is um, maybe a challenge point. It is always for me, I think, um, particularly going into a new year again, that um, I want to I have that chance to pause and to try and really see people and not just sort of dismiss them or, or look past them um, and not just look at them but to try and, um, and know them and look more at the need that might be there um, and slow down a bit. You know, I've, I've been studying James in the last um, few months and, and the verse, you know, about being um, slow to, um, quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry is one that I actually find quite helpful um, because it reminds me I've got to slow down, not just jump in and talk, um, but actually listen because it's, it's only when we stop and listen that we're likely to actually see um, rather than just jumping in um, through that lens of judgment and assumptions. Um, and then the providing, I guess, comes with that. And I, I was thinking that really our frontline assignments last year were about seeing and providing. Um, they were about being open to God and saying, um, "Where's you know who who do you want me to look at and and what need do you want me to provide or how do you want me to bless?" Um, so it's probably as simple as that. But um, yeah, just a couple of ideas about our horizontal relationship with others as opposed to our vertical relationship with God. I think I might have put that verse there. Actually, there we go. So um, that's really all I'm going to say today. Just you know, a couple of Old Testament stories that reveal a couple of names of God. Um, and amazing attributes of him that we can also really take hold of, I think, in our relationship with him, but also in our service for him 
um, towards other people. So I thought in closing I would use a prayer that I'm pretty sure I might have used before once when I was worship leading. Um, it's from a book by Tony Evans. And I may as well take a moment to say that I'm a bit of a fan of Tony Evans. I listen to his sermons a lot um, on YouTube driving to work in the mornings. Um, and I looked him up online because of this book, because I happened to buy this book some years ago, and it's on praying through the names of God. Um, and he just has a sort of a page or two on every name of God in, in Scripture and, and a prayer um, for them. So this is his prayer that he's written on um, El Roi, the God who sees me, and it wonderfully also references um, the Lord will provide. And he splits these prayers into four parts. So there's adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication. So I thought that I would end by praying this prayer to the God who sees me. Would you join with me in prayer? El Roi, through this great name, you reveal your heart in a uniquely powerful way. In this name, you remind us that you see us as individuals. You see, and thus you know. When you saw Abraham on the mountaintop and witnessed his trust in you, you provided a ram as Jehovah Jireh. Likewise, as El Roi, you see where I am and you respond. Because you see me, I know that I am truly known. To be known by you, to not be forgotten, is one of my greatest needs, so this name comforts me greatly. I praise you because you are not a distant God who sits far off, isolated from those you have made. Instead, you see me, you are with me, and you care. El Roi, when I feel alone and forgotten, please forgive me for neglecting to acknowledge your name. Forgive me for grumbling when I don't see the one who sees me. Help me to remember that you are there. Yes, you are the God who sees me in whatever situation I'm facing. Forgive me for failing to see the God who sees me. El Roi, when Hagar sat alone and afraid in the desert, you made yourself known to her as the God who sees. Thank you for making yourself known to me too as the God who sees. Whatever trial I face, you see it. Whatever opposition rises up against me, you see it. Whatever health issue comes upon me, you see it. Thank you for your attentiveness to me and for your willingness to reveal yourself as the God who sees. El Roi, you see. I ask you to act on our behalf when you see us wrong, wronged unfairly. I ask you to defend and vindicate us when you see us accused unjustly. When others toil less and yet receive more reward, we ask you to see the diligence and tenacity of our hearts and open doors for us that only you can open because you see. You do not see us as humanity does. You do not judge by external appearances or by what the world esteems. You see our hearts. And Lord, now we pray what, I, what Nehemiah prayed so long ago. Remember us with favour. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.